Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Something About Sports right here on Movement Radio. My name is Talon Williams. I am Chip Hazard. And I'm Roger Sierra. And today, ladies and gentlemen, on this edition of Something About Sports, we are going to be talking about the top upsets in the history of all sports. Now, you know, the Miracle on Ice turns 40 years old earlier this year, right? And while its status as both the greatest, most well-remembered upset in American sports history is secure, there are plenty of other iconic upsets throughout sports history that are just as worthy of being revisited on a night like this. With that in mind, let's take a look at some of the most memorable upsets in sports history. Uh, Roger, you want to take the first one? I mean, not really. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, damn, if you don't want to do it, fuck. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm a Yankees fan. <laughs> oh, that's why. Go ahead. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's the fun. I got it. I got it. I got it. I mean, you weren't even so, born when this was alive anyway, so it doesn't matter. I mean, it's still fine. It's okay. All righty. I still remember all the times the Yankees beat the, the Braves. It's fine. One year. One oh. year. <laughs> One year. <laughs> An evil empire. <laughs> now, nah, go ahead for real. So, so um, this upset is the Pirates stunning the Yankees in a classic World Series. Um, and to this day, it remains the only World Series decided by a walk-off home run in Game 7. Uh, Pirates and Yankees played one of the most curious fall classics ever when they met in 1960. Uh, New York had bulldozed the Pirates in each of its three wins with a combined score of 38-3 to in those contests. Good Lord. Jesus. Yeah, they were thrashing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it were. doesn't make sense. <laughs> Um, but the Pirates, by contrast, outscored the Yankees just 24-17 to in their four wins. Um, game 7 was a back-and-forth affair with the lead changing hands three times in the final two innings. That's got to be nerve-wracking. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, with the score tied 9-9 in the bottom of the ninth, so, so many eyes in that, um, <laughs> Pittsburgh Bill uh, Mirowski, also known for his defense, smashed a 1-0 Fastball over left field wall for an improbable victory. And for the series, the Pirates were outscored 55-27. to Mickey Mantle later said that the series was the only loss that ever drove him to tears. Yeah, it would have drove me to tears too. We had a 28 more scores than you, and you still win. Jesus Christ. Yeah, man. it's absolutely insane. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. Um, like the first I mean, three, go ahead. I'm sorry, Chip. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, that. that's why this is, you know, a, a stunning upset, you know, uh, in in the the all seven games, you know, the the Pirates only scored twenty seven runs to the Yankees fifty five total. Now that's over seven games, but I mean, you got to think those twenty seven runs uh, happened when it you know mattered the most. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the crazy thing but is... But, I mean, is that, the Yankees literally doubled the score. Yeah, and the crazy thing is is that, I mean, yeah. they the Yankees had them up 3-0, and then, like, that should have been it, you know? Maybe it was a situation where the Yankees felt like they didn't really have to do much to beat this team, and then they win game four. Okay, yeah, you win game four. We make it look like a struggle. We'll come in, and we'll beat you in game five. And then they lose game five, and then they think... Oh fuck! Wait a second. Okay, this is getting a little bit out of hand. Let's go ahead. And let's just go ahead and shut them down. And then they beat you in Game Six, and you think, "Holy shit! No, this ain't happening." You know. And then they, you have a, you know, a, I mean, we had one recently in 2016 um, when the uh, uh, 
Indians and the Cubs had their, you know, game seven. Um, you know, it was very, very close and very, very tight. We actually got, went into extra innings. Um, uh-oh, somebody's pissed off. But anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, for it to be, for it to go down, I mean, it's definitely an upset. I mean, you're 3-0 up in the World Series, and then they come back and beat you four straight. Like, that's shameful. <laughs> that's what you call a reverse sweep. Yes. Very, 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 very sad. Um, so, all right, uh, you got the next one. Yeah. I think I don't think Roger wants to talk about this anymore. <laughs> you got the next one, Chip. Uh, yeah, we're gonna uh, talk about the the time when Cassius Clay defeated Sonny Liston. Mm. Uh, so, arguably the greatest boxer ever in 1964, Muhammad Ali had not yet changed his name and was still mostly known. For his gift of gab and in his 60 night his 1960 light heavyweight gold medal at the roman olympics he came in at seven to one underdog to the fearsome sonny liston but thoroughly outboxed him for six rounds using his superior speed and technique to frustrate and hurt sonny liston when liston failed to meet the bell for the seventh round ali was declared the winner by tko and became, at the time, the youngest man to ever take the heavyweight title from a reigning champion. Yeah, and the and so the legend began. Um, yeah, I mean, you hear a lot about this, you know, with Muhammad. I think Muhammad Ali would tell the story of, you know, how and, and he wasn't even Muhammad Ali yet. He was still Cassius Clay, you know. He, had, he hadn't become the guy yet, but... I mean, it was a very much an upset at that point in 1964. And a lot of old school boxer boxing fans would say that if you were the best pound for pound, normally your best fighters were your heavyweight fighters. Um, and if you were the best heavyweight, you were considered overall the best boxer. Um, so for Sonny Liston to come in and for um, Ali to be a seven to one underdog against him, for it to end in the seventh round via TKO, like that's a testament to, to the strength that Ali had and to use the speed and the technique to frustrate him as well. And to become the youngest champion at that point in a stacked heavyweight division, I mean, that's a testament to how great Ali was then and what he grew to become to be considered the greatest of all time. Roger, what about you? I mean... Yeah, a young man coming in, especially at that era, um, wasn't seen or heard of going against pretty much these killers back in the day. Uh, you know, we have this thing about greatest of all times kind of thing. We don't really say that. But um, Muhammad Ali is definitely in the top tier of overall boxers. Um, and being able to beat the heavyweight champion in seven rounds was such a phenomenal thing back then. I mean... Uh, like they have old tapes and stuff like this and you can watch and just see how he like how his movement in the ring really is frustrating listing and how he's just his game plan is pretty solid overall it's just a beautiful thing to see oh yeah I mean you know it, it, one of his most notable phrases was float like a butterfly and sting like a bee and I mean that's literally what he would do you know he, he would dance around 
do the old rope a dope, you know, up against the ropes, let the guy tire himself out. Then he'd dance around him and just pepper him with jabs, you know, and then finally hit that haymaker, knock him down or knock him out. Yeah, it was definitely one of those. Uh, and then for it for for it to say that he outboxed him for six straight rounds, you know, as a, if you're Sonny Liston at that point, you think, "Who? What's wrong with me? Or did I just run up against somebody who was better than me?" And you know, when you when you're the champion, most of the time, and I don't know if it was a case of Sonny Liston underestimating Ali, but something was going on to where he wasn't the fearsome fighter that everybody thought that he would be up against him. You know, maybe his training regiment was off or something. I mean, also, Ali was a, I mean, Ali was an Olympic boxer too, so he was, like, his style was point-based, so he knew where to hit and how to get in and out to maximize not only the scorecard, but also how to injure just in case for the long run. Exactly. Right. All right. So we're going to move on to the next one. And the next one, son of a bitch. The it's Jet- your favorite team. Yeah. F- fuck the Jets. The Jets top the Colts <laughs> in Super Bowl three. Now, it might not be the greatest pure upset in terms of sheer unlikelihood, but given the NFL status as the country's most popular league, no shocker may have been more significant long-term ramifications than when the Jets' stunning win over the Colts. Jets quarterback Joe Namath guaranteed a win despite New York being an 18-point underdog and a sturdy defensive effort, plus a 121-yard performance by running back Matt Snell propelled the Jets to a 16-7 triumph. The win legitimate, excuse me, the win legitimized the AFL and set the NFL on a course for long-term sporting, you know, supremacy. But basically, if the Jets hadn't had beaten the Colts, you know, we people wouldn't take the AFL so seriously because this was, I think, I think this was because the merger of the NFL and the AFL took place. I want to say. At some point in the, some point in the sixties, wasn't it? I want to say, you know, because because it was around this time where, you know, and Joe Namath, you know, big time, you know, quarterback at Alabama comes in, and you know, I mean, for him to guarantee a win over a Colts team, which a lot of people say, oh, this is the best football team in the nation right now, and then for them to run, you know, you know, which really you can say that. You know, Matt Snell was, you know, the one who won it for him with 121 yard, you know, rushing performance. Um, but uh, how do you guys feel about this one? Uh, I mean, so the the AFL NFL merger was actually June 8th, 1966. 66. Okay. I knew it was um, in the 60s. I just couldn't remember. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but, I mean, you know, you come in as an 18 point underdog and your quarterback says, look, I guarantee we're going to win this. I know we're an 18-point underdog. It, it was literally they had something to prove. Um, and, you know, Joe Namath, one, one of the the best quarterbacks uh, of all time, um, came in and did what he said he was going to do, won the game. Roger? I mean, not much to really say. Like like the thing says, it's not really like that big of an upset. It's just – the fact that, you know, Joe Namath called it. Um, 
and worked his ass off to make it happen. Him and uh, Matt Snow, obviously. But yeah, uh, this was like the year right before the AFL and NFL became one. So it just made it that more, I guess, um, sweet of a victory for them. Right. But I mean, it's, I mean, 16 to 7, it's not that huge of a win, but it's still a win in the Super Bowl, especially back then when, I mean, it's just an 18 point underdog. It's just not, that doesn't really happen ever. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so that being said, you got the next one, Raj? Uh, yes. Uh, this one is um, Notre Dame and then UCLA streak um, in the 70s. So UCLA's Bonafide, uh, well-established in the early 70s with John Wooden's program. Um, entered in January 19th, 1974. Showdown with the number two Notre Dame uh, team. Right, an 88-game win streak. That's ridiculous. Yep. Uh, what is that? Three, four, three seasons? Uh, I think so. What well, back in the seventies? Maybe three, three and, and a half seasons. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but uh, while the Irish were a tremendous club in their own right, UCLA's dominance in college basketball is such that any loss qualified as a seismic upset. Uh, Dwight Clay hit a short jumper from the right corner to provide the winning margin in a 71-70 to 70 victory. And the fightish, uh, fighting Irish wow, uh, ended it what is still the longest winning streak in NCAA's men's history. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, fittingly, the last team to beat UCLA before it went on its nearly three-year unbeaten run was Notre Dame also. Wow. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the Notre Dame. Oh, so it was three years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people consider John Wooten one of the greatest, you know, college basketball co- coaches in the history of uh, college, men's college basketball. Um, and there's other coaches that are up there. You know, there's, you know, there's Dean Smith, obviously. You know, uh, Coach K. Um, you know, uh, Coach Williams from North, which he is, he's not even at North Carolina anymore. He ended up uh, retiring this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, for, I mean, for the program to have that level of dominance and then for Notre Dame to come out of nowhere and beat them. Like, I mean, it was a pretty, it was, it was pretty shocking at that moment in time. Cause we all, cause everyone thought that UCLA was unbeatable. I mean, they were unbeatable yeah. <laughs> at that time. 88 games is just, I mean, literally it's that unbroken record right now, yeah. but it's also, like we said back then, the, not as many games played. I mean, it's a three-year streak. Uh, nowadays, most teams are getting one loss no, no matter what. I mean, um, was it the only one team that went undefeated this year? Uh, if that, Gonzaga. I don't even think there was one team. Did they go undefeated? Yeah, Gonzaga. They lost the championship. They yeah until they lost in the champion until they ran into. Yes, they lost. So, yeah, they were undefeated <laughs> until then. So there was. Yeah, so there was no undefeated team at the end of the season. No, I, I mean happens, basketball. Like, I think it happens that, more in women's. I think it happens more in the women's uh, college basketball season because UConn's been undefeated a couple of times. Tennessee's been undefeated a couple of times. Um, Stanford, Stanford, uh, Baylor. Um, yeah, UConn's been undefeated a couple of times actually. Um, yeah, which, which which UConn gets all the good players. They you know they had Diana Taurasi, they had Maya Moore, like they had a whole whole lot of great you know players that played. Um, and of course, Tennessee had Candace Parker and a couple of others. You know, 
so yeah, so I mean, it's not it's it it's it happens more often in the women's game than it does in the men's game nowadays. But back then in the seventies, I mean, it was it was UCLA and it was always UCLA, you know. Um, right. So. Yep. So uh, right. <clears throat> I guess next up we're gonna uh, huh, look at me. I get to talk about Muhammad Ali again. There you go. Uh, <laughs> well, this time it is Muhammad Ali, not Cassius Clay. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about that time that Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman. There you go. Uh, so in in late 1974, no boxer on the planet was more feared than George Foreman. He was unbeaten and had destroyed Joe Frazier. He was seven years younger than Muhammad Ali who came into the fight a four to one underdog. However, rather than try to run from the hard punching foreman, Ali laid against the ropes and let foreman tire himself out with punches that hit Ali's arms and body and mostly had little to no effect. Uh, this is what they dubbed the rope a dope. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the eighth round, George Foreman was completely exhausted and Ali land, was landing clean shots. A five-punch combination put Foreman down for the count, and when the referee waved off the fight, the 32-year-old Muhammad Ali had regained the heavyweight title and scored a shocking upset. Yeah. It was, I mean, at the time it was in 1974 because... You got to remember that Ali, when he, when Ali was champion, he lost the title to Joe Frazier, and then Foreman beat Frazier for the title. So, whenever Foreman and I, whenever Foreman and Ali got to fight each other, immediately they were like, "Man, Frazier, you know, if Joe Frazier beat Muhammad Ali, if you know, if Frazier can't beat Foreman, ain't can't nobody beat Foreman, you know." You know, right. again, like what I talked about previously, if you were the heavyweight champion, you were considered the best boxer on the planet, regardless of weight class. So Foreman, you know, having the wherewithal to, you know, like, okay, I'm more vicious than him. I'm going to come in, you know, doing the best he can. And no one was expecting Ali to pull the rope of dope. Like, I mean, and a lot of people, I mean, now, I think nowadays, if if somebody tried to do a rope-a-dope today, they're like, oh, he's showboating, or he he ain't taking this fight seriously. Like, motherfucker, it's called strategy. You know, you wear, let the motherfucker wear his ass out, you know? Same thing happened to the uh, to the Marvin Hagler uh, fight when he fought, uh, fuck, who did he fight? When he fought Hearns, you know, it was, it would, you know, be it, 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 the same theory, you know? Um, let the guy tire himself out, and then when you know for a fact that he's gassed, go for the kill. You know, and Ali was tremendous at being a defensive boxer. He don't get enough credit for me. I don't think he's the greatest defensive boxer of all time, but I do think that his defense is, is at the time, was unparalleled to anybody else. Roger, what about you? Um, I mean, it was really great for the fact that the age difference and everything, people thought that Ali wouldn't be able to do it. But there's also always going to be a controversial, like, stigma with this one because – people saying that the ropes were a lot looser than they should have been. And that's what gave Ali the better um, capability of doing the rope of dope. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we weren't there. We can't really say yes or no about that, but I mean, his game plan was probably the best game plan he could have had against Foreman at the time, wear him out, make him tired. So you're more fresh and you'll be able to hit him better. Um, I mean, can't really say anything about that besides he having the best game plan yet again. Right. Chip. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't even know that the rope dope is still uh, legal to use. I think uh, if you're on the ropes for too long now, the the ref comes in and and breaks and uh, resets back to center. Right, I think uh, so. So I, I don't even know that this would would work in you know 2021. Um, but I mean, it was an amazing strategy back in the day because you could, uh, for a fighter like Ali, you could literally just you know lay on the ropes and keep your guard up, and you know, um, just keep you know as long as you kept your guard up and the the fighter that you were against did wasn't causing any damage to your arms and you could still lay in those heavy shots in retaliation then you could win because everybody knows that once you're gassed there's i mean you can't keep your your hands up there's not a whole lot of defense coming from you or anything like that right it makes it very very which <clears throat> i think most people nowadays when they think of george foreman they they automatically think oh, i got my george foreman grill in the kitchen y'all want to come get some burgers they grease free but, you know, people forget that George Foreman was one of the most, you know, feared fighters of all time, you know, and, you know, having good, bat, you know, bouts with, with again, with my, even though, in, even though he, he did lose this bout in the eighth round, I mean, he did show, still have that ferociousness, but unfortunately, it was a situation where he let his ferociousness get the better of him and it allowed him to get, you know, tired and then, you know, the rest is history. Speaking of history, right. we're going to move on to the next one. And this is what I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, the miracle on ice, the upset by which all other upsets in sports is measured. A team of collegial United States players shocked the world and perhaps themselves by beating the Soviet national team, widely regarded as the most talented group of hockey players on the planet at the 1980 uh, winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. Though the Soviets dominated play territorially, the United States was skilled on the counterattack. The and Mike Rizzioni, Mike, I'm sorry, Mike Rizzioni, tie-breaking goal with 10 minutes left in the third period held up despite a furious push by the USSR. Team USA won the game four to three despite having lost to the Soviet team ten to three in an exhibition game just prior to the Olympics. The win is still widely regarded as the biggest upset in American sports history. Um, yeah, I mean, they've made several documentaries about this. ESPN did a 30 for 30 about it. Uh, I believe Kurt Russell was in a movie about it. I think it was called Miracle. Miracle. Yeah, um, good movie for anybody who hasn't checked it out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and at the time, this is 1980. Um, and I believe there was some not political – uh, may have been some p type of political part with it, you know, with the, the Cold War. War was going on, and yeah, so that that was definitely something. So it was it was a feel good story for the United States. Like they, we got something, we got something to root for in the because most. Let's be honest, when it comes to the winter, everyone knows the Summer Olympics, and this kind of made it make people care more about the Winter Olympics than they did the Summer Olympics. Um, how did you guys feel about this one? First of all, you know the only thing that made people care about the Winter Olympics was Jamaican bobsled team. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and curling. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, there are so many movies. 
so many documentaries there's so much about this team and story um i mean you go watch them you'll understand like the true meme like it was more than just a hockey game i mean at the time it was a cold war so just another way for usa and russia to try to kill each other but not really kill each other right um but no like this i mean this was the olympics this this mattered this was for the gold it it, there was so much pride and everything on the line here right yep uh yeah i mean what there's not really much you could say about this that hasn't already been said right i mean it's literally called the miracle on ice uh and you know like roger said it was during the cold war um and it was just a way to you know for the soviets in the u.s to uh kill each other <laughs> legally right right all right um and i mean i mean the, i think the part that was the most shocking is that it was a bunch of college kids beating soviet men like professionals right yes and I think the one I want the one thing that a lot of people remember about it wasn't really the actual game itself, but it was more like the call at the very end of the game. I can't, I can't remember who called it, but it was like, "Do you believe in miracles?" Yes, like that whole thing of them winning at the end and the call that was made, and that that was you know played out so many times on like it's like what you what we said documentaries and movies and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was pretty big. I mean, it, for for the scheme of it all, for the grand in the grand scheme of things, it was definitely a big upset considering that a lot of people didn't think that it would happen, but it did. And it was a big upset. Um, speaking of big upsets, Roger, you got the next one. Um, yes, we have NC state shocks, Houston, um, Houston's high flying basketball team nickname by uh, slamma jamma. Yep. Which is hilarious. Uh, they rolled through college basketball season, international championship on a 26 game win streak. Um, the Cougars featured Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and were heavy favorites in the game. NC State was about to hang around, was able to hang around as Olajuwon had trouble adjusting to the altitude in Albuquerque, and Drexler was plagued with the first half foul trouble. Um, as time won down, the game was tied at 52, and the Wolfpack guard uh, Derek Wittenberg was forced to heave up a 30-foot prayer. It uh, was well short before uh, Lorenzo Charles gathered in the miss and dunked in before time expired, giving NC State a fifty-four to fifty-two win in its second national championship. Yeah, that was uh, Jimmy Valvano. Yeah, right. I mean, yep. Yep. Yes. Wait. Yeah, it was Jimmy V. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy V's team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got uh, you know two two of the all-time greats in the NBA with the Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler uh, on the same team. But for whatever reason, you know, during this game, they just couldn't put it together. Um, you know, NC State was uh, a huge underdog going into this game, and it doesn't say exactly what the uh, line was. I'm not sure that they even had, like, legitimate sports betting back then. Uh, I mean, they had betting. It wasn't bet legitimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had they had people's lives on stake, but, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but. But for the simple fact that that Elijah Wan and Drexler just couldn't get it together, you know, uh, like Roger said, you know, Drexler was in foul trouble uh, just in the the first quarter, um, and then uh, Elijah Wan, for whatever reason, couldn't adjust to the altitude in Albuquerque, 
which is really weird to think, you know, with Albuquerque being in New Mexico, we're talking about altitude, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, if this uh, was Denver, then I understand because it's a mile high city and people do have more trouble breathing in Denver because it's literally called the mile high city for a reason. It's one mile above sea level or whatever, but Albuquerque, I mean, you play in fucking Houston, like Albuquerque, New Mexico, Houston, Texas, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, that whole area is, you know, pretty much desert, isn't it? You know, well, Albuquerque is mostly, or, or, New, Me- or New Mexico is mostly. Um, Arizona's, but that's like the gate of hell or something like that. But anyway. Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, Albuquerque is in the mountainous region of New Mexico. Uh, and it's, you know, the elevation is uh, 5,312 foot. So close, so, so close to a mile. Yeah. So, um, Houston was favored by seven point five. Eight, yeah. Um, also, lost, which is weird. Two. Yeah, which was weird. I mean, uh, the MVP of the tournament was still Akeem Olajuwon. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I mean, yeah, is, so, yeah, so that so the losing team <laughs> had like the best player on the floor, obviously. Um, well, he apparently had to go off the court multiple times to receive oxygen just because he could not breathe at all. Wow, it's crazy. Uh, uh, also, they uh went on a to open the second half, they went on a 17 to 2 run, um, and that was just to get them a seven point lead, so they were behind most of that game. Yeah, that's crazy. Yep, so. yeah. but Hakeem, you know, Elijah Wan, you know. Um, and Clyde Drexler both had they had, they had pretty good careers after that in the NBA. You know, uh, Elijah One picked up two um, championships in, in uh, Houston. Um, Houston. You know, Clyde Drexler. You know, multiple multiple time uh, All Star. You know, bona fide Hall of Famer. Um, he never won any championship. Um, a victim of Jordan. Say what now? No, he was a victim of Jordan. He was a he was a victim he, to Jordan. He was a victim to Jordan. Yeah. Yes, he was. Uh, that being said, Chip, you got the next one. A, a lot of oh, go ahead, Chip. Uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, real quick, I was going to say a lot of great players became a victim to uh, you know Jordan and the the Bulls. Patrick Ewing, so, uh, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, um, Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller early on, yeah. But um, Clyde Drexler apparently is the commissioner of the Big Three basketball tournament. Interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. League, I mean. Yeah, Ice yeah. Cube's uh, league. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. Do, do Have you guys ever watched that? Yeah, it's actually really good. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's just half-court basketball, like street basketball. <laughs> Bring M1 back. <laughs> I wish. I wish too, bro. Right. I do. All right. You got- it, it makes no sense that it doesn't thrive more in the era of YouTube. Yeah, that that you, I know. you would think it would, but you know. So, all, all right. right. So next one, next one, Chip. Yep. Next, we're going to talk about. Yep. Next, we're going to talk about the time that Villanova shot down Georgetown. Um, so Patrick Ewing's 1984-1985 Georgetown team was a force of nature. The Hoyas were the number one team in the country and carried a 30 and two record into the national title game. Villanova played Georgetown tight twice during the season, but the Wildcats were significant underdogs in the game. They played a nearly perfect game to defeat Ewing and the Hoyas, shooting 78.6% from the floor and missing just one 
field goal attempt in the entire second half of the game. Wow. That's crazy to think in itself. Yeah. Um, so Villanova's final seven points of the contest came via free throws. And with a 66-64 lead and two seconds left, they were able to safely end the bound the ball as time expired. The eight-seeded Wildcats remain the lowest seed to ever win a national title. Yeah, that is crazy. Poor Patrick Ewing can't catch a break, can he? <laughs> didn't win in college, didn't nope. win in the pros, you know? Looking like Beetlejuice Another shit. victim of Jordan. Another victim of Jordan, exactly. Um but yeah, I mean this. I mean this for 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 the majority of, I mean the Georgetown was always known. Like when I was when I was young, uh, and I wasn't born yet at this point. This was eighty four. I wasn't born until eighty six. But when you start getting into sports and stuff, you you know you want to learn the history. You know you want to learn a little bit about you know the sport that you're you know interested in learning about. You know you you always hear about oh, Georgetown was such a great program for college basketball it was one of the best programs of all time like it had all these amazing players it had Patrick Ewing and all these different things like well, did Patrick oh so did he won in college no, well no he they ran into this team called Villanova and it's like oh yeah well that would do it for you you know um, but yeah I mean so to be favored I mean you're carrying a thirty win two loss record into the national title game you know. Um, it says that they were significant underdogs. Um, did it give? It didn't give the uh, the line. Obviously, um, I'm sure one of us can look it up. Um, uh, I mean, they were the eighth seed at the time, so right. So it probably pretty insurmountable odds, you know. And th- for them to be the lowest seed to win a national championship at the eighth seed, like that's that right there is just history making in and of itself. Yeah, I mean they're the, they have remained the lowest seed, um, which is actually weird to me to think about. Um, uh, yeah. Let me see. Uh, Villanova, Georgetown, eighty five. Let's see what the line was. Uh, Um, I cannot find one for that game. Hmm. That's crazy. That's really weird. If you go to the if you go to Wikipedia, oh. it should tell you the lot the 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 the, the over under. That's what I'm on right now. Oh, oh shit! Maybe maybe it don't. <laughs> That's really weird. Because I mean, it was a big difference too. So. Maybe it was one of them situations where they didn't put a line because it was it was no point in putting a line because they everybody thought Georgetown was going to win anyway. Uh, let's see. While we're paused right here, ladies and gentlemen, let me give a big shout out to my good friend Sean Thompson over at Thompson Personal Training. He is offering a very special deal right now. If you sign up, you get the first two weeks absolutely free. And if you decide to continue with the training, he will prorate your first month and then you make regular payments second month and beyond. So go check him out on Facebook, Sean Thompson or Thompson Personal Training on Facebook and go see what it's all about. Uh, Villanova was an eight-point underdog. Just eight points? Uh, wow. Eight point. Yeah. I figured it'd be more than that, considering they were an eight seed playing in the national championship game. That's strange to me. No, they were. Well, 
Well, they also played them twice in the season. It was really close. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they so probably they took were. that into account. Yeah, because they're well, they are, they're both Big East teams, right? Yeah, they're both Big East. Yeah, because Big East is like Georgetown, Villanova, Xavier, St. John's, or St. John's. I don't think it exists anymore. Say what now? I don't think it exists anymore. Uh, I think I, think, I so. think it still does. Does it? I think so? Uh, I might a, be wrong, but I, think, I thought it still did. It's uh, UMBC. Oh, I'm on the wrong one. There you go. Wow. Does it not exist? <laughs> uh, Villanova, Creighton, Connecticut, St. John's, Seton Hall, Providence, Xavier, Georgetown, Marquette, Butler, and DePaul. Okay. Yeah. Because I know Syracuse left it. Right. So. All righty. So, I don't even know where they went to. Was it the ACC? I th- huh. I th- where did they go to? Did they not? Did Uh, where, who were you talking about? Syracuse. Syracuse. Uh, did they do? Did they go to the ACC? I don't think they did. That I can remember. Well, let's see. Yeah. So yes. off tangent. Yes, they are. They're in the ACC. They're in the ACC. Okay. Yeah. The, okay, that's what I thought. The ACC consists of uh, Virginia, Florida State, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech. Clemson, UNC, Louisville, Syracuse, North Carolina State, Duke, Notre Dame, Pittsburgh, uh, University of Miami, Wake Forest, and Boston College. Which, which is weird to me, for 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 one specific reason. Notre Dame, in every other sport, they are ACC, but when it comes to football, they're independent. Uh, they were ACC. Are they ACC or are they st- so they're independent? In, they, but 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 they always claim independent in uh, in the in football. They were forced into the ACC last year oh, they, during the COVID. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. All right. Just how much I paid attention. <laughs> All right. So, and I mean they, they may they may have pulled back out uh, for for this season, but I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, I think it was just for that year. I think they're just they're back to being independent again. They were forced to be in the ACC for 2020. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So the next one does it make sense though? I don't know. I'm. I don't know if it doesn't make sense or not. <laughs> All right. So the next one we're going to talk about is what a lot of people believe to be the biggest upset in the history of boxing. Buster Douglas dominates Mike Tyson. Now. Tyson entered the fight. Tyson entered the fight as the most feared man on the planet and was a dominating force of nature. Buster Douglas, by contrast, had a reputation of fading late into fights. And many boxing experts questioned his toughness, his chin, and his conditioning. Douglas entered the fight at 42 to 1 underdog. With only the Mirage Sports books posting odds for the fight, the bout itself was as stunning as the final outcome. Douglas took it to Tyson from the opening bell, dictating terms and getting the be- getting the better of almost every single exchange. Douglas looked to be in trouble after being knocked down by an uppercut in the eighth round but rallied back in the ninth to hammer Tyson with a powerful punch. 
In the 10th round, he dispatched the tiring Tyson with a perfect uppercut and multiple power punches that landed flush. Tyson could not beat the count, and the greatest upset in the history of boxing was complete. Um, Like, I mean, this, I mean, for you to be a 42 to 1 underdog, and you walk in there and you beat a man who everyone believed was unbeatable, untouchable, like literally the scariest boxer in in the weight because you know like what we said and this was you know from previous things if you are the if you are the heavyweight champion you're considered the best boxer you know that was still the idea and the mentality back then but a 42 to 1 underdog i mean that's insurmountable odds right there um what do you guys think about this particular one I mean, the biggest upset in box, boxing history was Nate Robinson taking that L. But uh, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but no, I mean, at the time, Mike Tyson was the baddest man on the planet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was a killer in the ring. Like <laughs> nobody wanted to box against him. No. Uh, I mean, Buster Douglas came in, I guess, with the. Opposite uh, strategy of most people, and he was the aggressor against Tyson, which was really hard to do to begin with. Um, I don't know, but I still feel like this was a, a thrown fight more than anything because it just doesn't. Tyson doesn't seem like himself in the fight to begin with. Well, uh, you got to remember, this was the time that um, his marriage was Robin Givens, or Robin Givens was going downhill. Um, he was also uh, getting ready to go to trial for rape uh, at this point. Uh, and um, <clears throat> there there are reports that said that his uh, training was less vigorous at this point, uh, and he seemed to have lost direction. Um, so, you know, not to say that, you know, Buster Douglas didn't, earn that win uh it also by all accounts seems that he earned the win against a man who just didn't want to be there yeah i mean not i mean but even but even still you know regardless of whatever else was going on with tyson at the time i mean 42 to 1 is a pretty big lopsided number when it when it, in terms of underdogs i mean that's like you know you get like the, the the best baddest team in the NFL against the worst team in the NFL, and that team is a forty two to one underdog, and then it, it's shocking when they win. You know, now I'm getting boxing and football are obviously two different sports, and there's two different you know strategies. Um, but man, I mean, it that for 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 it to happen at the time that it happened, and you know, like what like well, like what you said. I mean, I know it doesn't really excuse Tyson in the, in that regard but Buster Douglas came in there with the idea that I'm not afraid to fight with Mike Tyson you know and for I mean we thought I mean a lot of people believe that it was over in the eighth when Tyson connected with that uppercut and then for him to have the wherewithal to rally back and then beat him in the tenth I mean that say that says something for Buster Douglas's uh you know courage and discipline Right. You know, uh, also, uh, one thing that's not talked about a whole lot during this, 
uh, fight is that Buster Douglas had a 12-inch reach advantage over Mike Tyson. Yeah. That's crazy to me. 12, like a whole yeah. foot reach. Yeah. Yeah, just got to keep him at bay. Mm-hmm. Got to keep yeah. that right up. <laughs> so. All right. Uh, Rod, you got the next one? Um, sure. Uh, the next one is Duke stunning UNLV, which is weird to say at the time. Uh, not only really know the legacy of Duke, but right. in 1990, the 1990-91 UNLV men's basketball league was coming off a dominant run to a national championship the year before. The running Rebels were riding a 45-game winning streak heading to national semifinal matchup with second-ranked Duke. Um, despite the game matching the top two teams in the country, he expected a close contest as UNLV had blown out the uh, Blue Devils 103-73 the previous year's championship. Uh, and then Duke pulled the shocker thanks to a huge game from uh, old Christian Latner, uh, <laughs> who put 28 points as well as 15 off the bench from uh, Brian Davis. Duke held UNLV 20 points below its season average. They controlled the tempo and never let Coach Jerry uh, Tarkanian's team go on one of their patent runs on route to a 79-77 win. Uh, the loss snapped was the longest winning streak since U- UCLA's 88 um, game 17 years prior. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, you know. Uh, you know, for, for the running Rebels to be on a 45-game win streak and you know, basically blowing everybody out, uh, including the the Duke Blue Devils, uh, you know, uh, uh, the entire year prior. Um, and then for, you know, the, the Blue Devils to come back and win the very next year. Now, they did only win by two, but, you know, the old saying, it doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile, a win, win is, is a win. win. Yep. Yep. Um it, did, I think this was this game was actually talked about. Um, do you guys remember the ESPN? I'm, I referenced the Thirty for Thirties a lot. I just think they're great documentaries. Did you guys ever watch the uh, the documentary "I Hate Christian Leitner? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I believe this was talked about in the uh, in the documentary. But correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say it was because um, I remember this. It was the. I don't remember if this was the game where they inbound the ball and Christian Leitner stole it or something like that, or Christian inbounded the ball. I can't remember which which one it was. Um, it's going to bug the fuck out of me until I go watch that documentary again. Um, but yeah, I mean, for like what, what you said, Chip, for the rebels to basically have this win streak that, that would, that a lot of people believed, uh, hearkened back to the days of the UCLA team from the seventies, you know, with their 88 game, you know, win streak. Um, a lot of people believe like, oh man, this is going to be that, that next dynasty team, that next UCLA. Um, and then for it to all go up and smoke um, against with guys like, you know, Brian, Brian Davis, Christian Leitner and Duke, you know, and for Duke to hold them to 20 points, you know, a, below their season average to control the tempo of it. I mean, that's insane. I mean, you can hold I mean, if you hold them to their average or a little bit below their average, I mean, two, three points, maybe five at the most, you know, depending on how well the defense is getting played. But my God, 20 points below their season average. I mean, that right there is like, okay, we came to show up, show out, and beat you guys because you put a shellacking on us the year prior, 10, you know, you beating us basically by 
30 points, you know. So now, and like what we said earlier, even though it was only a two-point game, you know, they still won. You know, so it had to be it had to be a, a good sigh of relief and a feel good moment for the Blue Devils to to be able to to avenge that loss. Oh, I agree one hundred percent there. Rod, you still with us? Yep. Yeah, sorry, okay. I muted myself. I sneezed. I forgot to unmute myself. <laughs> it been a lot of that going sorry. on lately. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, and allergies right now are horrible, but yeah. All right. So now we're going to talk about uh, Chip. You got the next one? I do. We're going to talk about Mr. No, 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 not in my house. <laughs> Matumbo. Um, yep. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why. Maybe the Kim so, uh, Matumbo sound like Pee Wee Herman. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, sounded more like Fat Albert to me, but okay. There you go. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Dikembe Mutombo's Denver Nuggets were prohibitive underdogs in their first round series with the powerhouse Seattle Superhawks. <laughs> the Seattle Supersonics, uh, whose 63 and 19 record was the best in the league in the 94 NBA playoffs. Uh, for the first two games, things went according to script with Seattle winning by a combined 34 points. However, the Nuggets rallied to win the next two games in Denver and then completed a shocking comeback by downing the Supersonics 98-94 in overtime in a decisive Game 5. Robert Pack came off the bench to play hero for the Nuggets, scoring a game-high 23 points. The win also gave sports fans the iconic image of Matumbo in jubilant disbelief, laying on the court in celebration after the win. The series marked the first time an eighth seed had beaten a one seed since the league expanded its playoffs to 16 teams in 1984, just 10 years prior. And that's crazy, the fact that an eighth seed beat the number one seed. I mean, obviously, anytime you're looking at any sport, you know, whenever you get to the playoffs and you have them, you, you, you know, they're put in place. Obviously, the best team is getting the number one seed based on record. If you got the best record, you get the number one seed, second best records, number two, and so on and so forth. And the way that they put the bracket together is that they always put the bracket to where the best team plays the worst team in the first round so they can go ahead and advance. It's the easiest way to advance. So it's basically one, because obviously you don't want the two best teams playing against each other in the first round because then what's the point of watching the rest of the rest of the uh, tournament because everybody else, you know, so that's why it's always like safe eight teams, for example, you know, two, uh, one versus eight, two versus seven, three versus six and five and four, you know, which five and four and three and six, sometimes they can kind of go either way. And seven and two, uh, games are always, you know, yeah, it, if, if 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 the number seven team can get hot at the right point or if they're coming into the tournament with momentum, then they could possibly make it upset. But it's very, very rare, very rare that a number eight seed beats a number one seed. The last time I can remember in my lifetime, obviously this was in my lifetime, it was 1994, but the last one, current one that I can remember was when the um, – Golden State Warriors pre Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and you know, all them. This is when Baron Davis was on the team when they upset the Dallas Mavericks in the first round when they were the number one seed. 
I can't remember what year that was. I want to say it was 2007. I can't remember. Seven or eight. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about, Roger. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it was 2007. Yeah, 2007. Yeah, because that was the year that uh, that was the year that uh, uh, Cleveland and San Antonio met in the uh, met in the, the finals that year and San Antonio just wiped the floor with them. Um, yeah, well, that was also the last time that um, a number eight seed defeated a number one seed. Right, but for this for, for, for this particular, I mean, I mean, obviously, 1984, back then, I mean, and when the, when, when, the, when the playoffs expanded to the 16-team format, you know, it gave other teams opportunities to showcase, you know, to prove that we belong here, we can be, you know, just as good, which back then – they didn't have seven games in the first round back then. It wasn't like a was it like a five game series back then? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, because when you said game five, I was like, oh shit, they beat them four to one. Then I thought, no, wait a minute, it was three to two because they had a five game series back then. They didn't start doing seven game series in round ones until like 20, 2010, 2011, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Oh um, no, because they talked seven. Uh, Two thousand seven was the best of seven. Oh, okay. All right. So, yeah, because I'm because yeah. I remember them talking and that about was, it. Yeah, yeah, and that that was literally the first year uh, a number eight seed defeated a number one seed in a best of seven. There you go. Wow. So we learn a lot here on uh, Movement Radio, ladies and gentlemen. You're either gonna laugh your ass off, or you're gonna learn something. Hopefully, you do both. Right. Yeah, so, Roger, what about you, buddy? What do you think about this one? Um, I mean. I don't know. Like this one, I feel like is one of those moments that they always like go back to and replay. But it has been a while since either these team really did anything, though. I mean, the Sonic obviously haven't done anything, but <laughs> um, right. I mean, I don't know. The Nuggets nowadays are right now, especially they're posted to be probably the top team in the West, most likely because of a uh, uh, Jokic. Yeah. Yes. But um, and logic. I don't know. Like it's it like yeah. Um, I was gonna say, like, I still remember this picture even when I was little before I really got into basketball. Like, I always remember this picture being one of those things that they always showed on commercials where, like, this is the NBA or, um, where the NBA, whatever their slogan used to be back in the day, right? Yeah, uh, but no, like, it's one of those cool things. Um, but like, this, yeah, this definitely had to be a super upset back in the day. Um, I mean. Everybody remembers the Sonic teams from the 90s. Well, I mean, you got to think, mm-hmm. 1994, who all was on that team? You had Gary Payton, you had Hershey Hawkins, Deflet Shrimp, Sean Kemp. I mean, you had a lot of good players on that team. You know, um, I mean, the Nuggets had D- Dikembe, obviously. Um, God, who else was on that team besides Dikembe? Oh, uh, by, by the way, Roger, uh, your, your previous comment, the Denver Nuggets do not have the best record. Um, no, I said they're supposed to possibly be the best in the West right now. Yeah, right now it's Utah. It's Jay. Yeah, I know the Jazz. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, the Denver the the Nuggets are uh, the four seed right now. In the oh, West, wow, they dropped Nuggets, down that far. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it's it's Jazz, Suns, Clippers, Nuggets, Lakers, Mavericks. Or the top six, right? Yeah. Because ten and seven and eight and nine play a play a play in game this this year, right? To get the seven and eight yep. spot. 
Yep. Yeah. And uh, seven is uh, Portland. Eight is the Grizzlies. Nine is the Spurs, and ten is the Warriors. Fuck. And that's in the West. So it, so so if the da- so if the damn playoffs were to start today, Memphis would have to go through San Antonio to get that number seven seed, and chances are we'd probably end up playing fucking um, Denver or not Denver. Um, who'd you say was the number two seed? Suns. Uh, Suns. Phoenix. Yeah, we'd end up yeah. having to play Phoenix. Hell, that's if we, Chris Paul. If we fucking, if yeah, I'll do and Devin Booker. Yeah, I'm actually, you know, like in in a weird way, if Memphis doesn't, you know, advance or whatever, I kind of like would like to see Phoenix win just because I want to see Chris Paul get a ring, you know. But that's a different that's a different story because I feel like he's the one guy that like him and well him Carmelo a couple of others that haven't haven't got their rings yet. Like I feel like man, they're they're overdue for one. You know what I mean? Not everybody deserves it. That is true. <laughs> but most people got, but if you get them, you got to earn them. So, but, but anyway, all right. So yep. that being said, we're going to move on to the next one. And this next the one, the last one for the evening, last one for the evening, Harvard women yes. make history before UMBC. We will talk about that on part two before UMBC. Yep, that's the University of Maryland at Baltimore um, County. Baltimore County. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Before them, there was the 1998 Harvard's women's basketball team. The Crimson were probably underseeded as they entered the game at 22 to 4 and boasted the nation's leading scorer. And two Stanford players were lost to injury in the run up to the game. It was still an astonishing result. Harvard led for most of the game and rallied late for Stanford when Stanford managed to take the lead 65 to 62. The Crimson finished the game on a 9 2 run to win 71 to 67 and remains the only 16 seed in women's tournament history to beat a number one seed. Even more impressive, because of the tournament rules, Harvard's win came on Stanford's home court. So even more rub it in the face. Yeah. So so not only the this, I mean, because when people think of Harvard, they don't think it's not really like a sports centric school. You know, they think Harvard, they think lawyers, doctors, you know. Um, I think Met Reth, uh Method Man and Redman. Method Redman. <laughs> That was such a that was such a funny movie. I love that movie. Um, I, I we ain't got no damn plan. Sorry, you think of who? Christopher Nowinski. Right. Yes. CTE. That's what you think. Yeah. Mr. CTE himself. Yeah. Yes. Right. But God, you guys are horrible. No, but but in actuality, like for this game particularly, they, I mean, again, I mean, they entered the game. At 22-4 and four and boasted the nation's leading scorer. Now, two Stanford players were lost to injury in the run-up to the game. It was still an astonishing result. I mean, a lot of people can make the excuse, well, you know, two of our players were out. You know, um, of course, you know, I'm a firm believer in next man up. You know, that means, okay, if two players are out, that means you got to step your game up. You know, you got to come in and do your thing. Um you know, but for for like what we talked about in the previous entry, 
an eight seed and a one seed. But this is a 16 seed. Like these people weren't even supposed super to be, low. Seed. Yeah. <laughs> like these people weren't even supposed to be in this tournament in a sense because they didn't, you know, obviously they were the best in the Ivy League, obviously, but for them to for them to, you know, defeat a team, granted that they had they did have they did lose two players to injury. But still, I mean, a 16, even if you, I mean, you're still a number one seed. You can still overcome. But it didn't happen, you know? Nope, not at all. And this just goes to show that uh, there's the quote in football, any given Sunday. Yep. I mean, this is just any given day, you know, you can, uh, you can get ousted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about sports. That's why we love it. I mean, obviously, we want to see our teams win, but we also like to see the underdog win. Yeah, that's why I think. See, oh, yeah. And that's, yeah, I will always root for the underdog. Yeah, and I think because you um, <laughs> two are so great at this. <laughs> say what now? Say what now? So you two are so great at this, just talking over each other. Uh, yes. Whenever whenever this thing gets edited, it'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the kinks or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean. Anytime, I mean, obviously the underdog story because it's it's something that we all, in a in a weird way, and I had somebody tell me this a while back, like the reason why underdog stories are so, you know, like the ultimate underdog story is David and Goliath. You know, G- Goliath was this huge monster, you know, or whatever, or giant or whatever, and then little bitty ass David just takes a slingshot, pow, right in the, right in his dome, and he was down, you know. Um, David was the heel in that. <laughs> He used an illegal weapon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh Lord. Yeah. Goliath was the baby face. <laughs> I don't know all the terror that he did up to one point. All right, we we ain't getting into that storyline <laughs> right now. <laughs> Nevertheless, yeah. hell, 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 Jacob wrestled with the angels. I won't let you. I don't. I will not let you go till you bless me. Anyway, we we're not talking about that right now. But. Uh, I gotta send you guys a video for that. That's there, hilarious. There you go. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We 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 got twelve knocked down. We're gonna give you the thirteen more on the very next edition of this. Um, there will be a part two to the biggest upsets in sports. Um, but we're running a little low on time tonight, so we're gonna go ahead and get out of here with that. Anything you guys want to say before we uh, get out of here this evening? Um, as always, check out movementradio.us. It is literally your one stop shop for all things movement radio. Uh, and if you just so happen to be listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review. It does nothing for us monetarily, but it does help with Apple's algorithm to get the podcast out to a broader audience. Absolutely. Roger, anything from the Patreon channel today? Um, I mean, for most of you that don't know, our second episode of... Um, Wow, I forgot what it was. Uh, Battle Topics <laughs> uh, dropped for free, but I mean, y'all got to wait three months for that. So just go to the Patreon, you know, donate a dollar uh, or subscribe for a dollar every month, and you can hear that stuff right away. You don't have to wait three months for this content. Right. It's that easy. It's that easy, ladies and gentlemen. Um, also, we said it before yes. in the earlier episode. Again, shout out to Sean Thompson, Thompson Personal Training. Again, that deal you sign up if you sign up you get the first two weeks absolutely free and if you continue he will prorate your first month and continue for regular payments for the second month shout out to uh, jerry and jennifer over at the chronic conversation podcast they do a lot of cool things over there shout out to our boy ivan over there twitch.tv slash uh under 
Unleashed Demon. I'm sorry, I don't know why the hell I said that. Um, but yeah, he's got he's got a couple he's got some good content coming up as well. Um, and as always, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Something About Sports. We love you guys, and we'll see you back here next week for the second edition. Actually, pause. Next week is a very special edition of Something About Sports. Next week, we are actually going to be reviewing the 2021 NFL Draft. It will be a recap show of what's going to be happening this upcoming Thursday with the draft. And um, we look forward to that as well. We're going to see who the hell the Miami Dolphins picked up. God help us. We don't get a good court. We need playmakers. Anyway, uh, that being said, we'll see what Miami did. We'll see what Denver did. We'll see what Houston did. And we'll see what happens there. That being said, again, thank you guys so much. We'll see you back here next week with another edition of Something About Sports. Chip, let's hit him with the outro. Please do not leave without leaving a like, comment, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Go to the YouTube channel, subscribe, click that bell to get notified of our latest videos, and once again, patreon.com and movementradio.us. I am Chip Hazard. I am Talon Williams. I'm Roger Sierra. And this is Movement Radio. God's plan.